Uh, now, I've just sent you around um, notes. In fact, having asked you to read um, certain footnotes to chapter one, I, I then managed to produce a copy that didn't have the footnotes. So I'm, what I'm doing now is sending around the footnotes to chapter one of Black, Black Sun. Okay. So everybody sh has everybody got a copy of, of the footnotes? Yes? Um, I was a little bit worried that, because um, uh, I know some people had problems opening the, uh, the copy of the poems and the, the poem and the translation of the poem that I sent. Uh, so did it, were people able to open that or were some people unable? Because I've got copies of it here, if anybody needs a copy of the, the sonnet, El Destichado. Have you, I sent it to you again in RTF, did you? Okay. Who else needs a copy of that? Everyone else has got... Right, okay. Uh, and the other thing is, I have sent this to you by email, but let me give it to you now. And apologies for lateness due for these introductions due to, as um, National Rail says, circumstances beyond our control. Um, let me pass that round. Okay, I'll keep one or two, thanks. Okay. Um, now, have, have, uh, just let me make sure that people have got the relevant texts. There were two texts of Christophe's. There's the, an extract from her essay, The Melancholic Imaginary, okay, the, f uh, the first um, 10 or 12 pages, I think it was, um, which gives her a, a very uh, brief outline of her view of melancholia, her difference from Freud, and then she gives a reading of a poem. Uh, and unfortunately, in that version of her essay, they don't quote the poem whole, you know, um, so that's why I'm, I'm giving you the French text and my translation of the French text. Um, so there are two, two things, actually there were three, because I d then gave you a little extract from chapter three, which was a, clinical, a short clinical case study. Okay? Uh, again, that's about seven or eight pages, so it's quite short. Um, so what you've got from her then is um, an extract from her essay, The Melancholic Imaginary, chapter one of the book Black Sun, uh, which is on melancholia and various, uh, both the general theory of melancholia, but also a series of studies of, of, of poetry and painting and uh, a, a, a range of um, cultural and clinical uh, e examples of, of melancholia that she discusses in detail. Um, and then um, the, uh, the translation I gave you and, um, and the Keats poems, which some of you will have from the anthology you use if you did Romantic and Victorian. And for those who, who didn't do that course, you know, uh, you can get it off the internet. You can get it anywhere. Okay. Um, okay, but there were three, the three, three major odes of Keats I wanted to think about, in particular and obviously Ode on Melancholy. Okay, uh, it's the obvious one. Okay, so um, this is our third week thinking about the question of, 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 of uh, mourning and melancholia and the different f different forms and different models of melancholia um, developed first by Freud, then by Abraham and Torok, and this week by Julia Kristeva. However, and it's, I suppose it's mainly going to be a theoretical lecture, but I want to, uh, I want to just uh, read out and, and let sort of hang in the air, as it were, um, uh, to the, the poem El Destichado, The Disinherited, by um, Gerard de Naval that she takes as her text. And she, in fact, in the book itself, she has a whole chapter, a much more elaborated chapter, uh, a, a, a more elaborated analysis of the poem. Um, uh, the, the little essay uh, is a kind of um, 
succinct summary in a way. Um, whereas uh, the chapter I've given you from Black Sun and the later chapter on de Nerval, uh, a much more a fuller elaboration of both her theoretical ideas and uh, her particular analysis of, of, of the poem. Um, so, and, that, and the poem, which already had a, a great uh, classic standing in, in, in French and to some extent in English literature, uh, Eliot, in, in his poetry, is haunted by this poem, T.S. Eliot, and lines from it and images from it echo at different moments in Eliot's poetry. Um, <coughs> but her analysis, is, as it were, has underlined the status of the poem. Um, and uh, I'll read out um, the Ode on Melancholy. But you might, and I think you might also, we're, we're building up, if you like, uh, a kind of uh, uh, what Marlowe called a musée imaginaire, a kind of imaginary museum. Uh, if you think <coughs> of, of the poems by Poe that we looked at in the first week, The Raven in particular, uh, uh, some of the short stories or tales by Poe uh, about the mourner's relation to the dead and the return of the dead. Um, if we think about Keats's extraordinary poem, uh, <coughs> the um, Isabella or the Pot of Basil, and the figure of Isabella as is this melancholiac um, uh, figure, um, who, and, and as I was sort of thinking about it in one part of my mind while um, preparing the material for, for this week, it did occur to me at a certain point, um, in a way, Isabella really kills Lorenzo, right? I mean, he's, in a weird you know, way, he's still alive. He comes back to her in, in a vision and says, I'm, I'm here and I'm feeling all these feelings and hearing all these sounds and I'm rather lonely and I wish you'd come and visit me. I mean, she comes and she cuts his head off, right? So in a way, you know, she, the melancholic mourner, uh, the melancholiac lover, kills the lost object in that poem. And it never quite occurred to me to put it like that. Um, but by cutting his head off, she silences him. And of course, that's the point in the poem where he stops being Lorenzo and becomes it. Uh, that is to say, becomes the basil pot. Um, and then to this week, we've got um, uh, uh, de Nerval's sonnet and we've got um, uh, Keats's odes. So they, f they form a kind of, if you like, imaginative repertoire uh, of different um, styles of melancholia, different representations uh, uh, of melancholia um, as, a, as both as an emotional state and as, a, and, and as an activity, as a work of melancholia, to use uh, Freud's original phrase. Okay, so let me read out um, the poems, just because I, I don't want them to be forgotten, as it were, so I was, I'm hoping in some way that by hearing them and then going into the theory, um, that will um, spark connections, as it were. Uh, pardon my French accent. I do think the, f the musicality of the French is really important. Who is, who's done some French at school here? Yes, some? Um, I think even if you haven't, um, and, and uh, I should try and get a recording of somebody reading it in French. Actually, there is one. There's a really weird one on the, on the web, because um, I, was, I was hunting around for something, uh, and it's by a French performance artist who does do a performance of it. Um, and, and it's part of some larger video in which he plays the role on stage. So it's a film, it's a, f it's a video of, of, a, of, a, of a sequence on a stage somewhere in France. He plays the role of the French poet Guillaume Apollinaire, um, but he, it begins by him reciting. Um, it's very strange because it's, it's in the dark, <laughs> appropriately enough. You know, so you see this mouth. Um, uh, and, and you realize after a while, well, I won't tell you what it is, you'll work it out yourself. You then see this image, um, which is a photograph of de Nerval, and the photograph speaks the poem. It's kind of really 
uncanny <laughs> to anticipate next week's term. Um, <coughs> but hearing, the, vo hearing the, the, the vowel sounds and hearing the rhythms in French, um, which it's impossible to, to catch in English, I did my own translation because I thought most of the ones that are available and that are given sometimes, or they're given in her book, the English version of her book and elsewhere, just, just maul the French really badly, both rhythmically and in terms of its phrasing. So I tried my own hand as a translator, um, however um, unsuccessful that may be. So I'm going to try reading it in French and then in English. Okay. And there is a French, there are a set of conventions which I'm, go I'm going to mess up because I don't because uh, I don't habitually read French poetry in public, um, they pronounce the words slightly differently. Um, they pronounce syllables that ordinary, ordinarily aren't pronounced in ordinary speech. When you're in poetry and when you read poetry, they are pronounced. And I think we don't have a, an equivalent convention, really. Uh, I suppose if we're reading poetry from an earlier period, um, like Chaucer or, or Shakespeare, we would try to, to pronounce the words as we can reconstruct, would have been pronounced by Chaucer or by Shakespeare. But if we're reading 19th century poetry or 20th century poetry, poetry that's whose speech styles are close to us, we just read it as we would speak the words in ordinary speech, whereas that's not the case in French. Um, so, uh, partly because French elides a lot of uh, syllables, particularly at the ends of, uh, at the ends of, of words. Um, uh, syllables are just not pronounced. We have a number of those in English, but there's a lot higher proportion in French of elision. Uh, but when you're reading out the, po po the poem in public, uh, the syllables that would normally not be pronounced are pronounced. And I'm sure I'm going to mess that up, but it's, it's part of the, um, the attention to constructing what we could always call an oral or a sonic object in, in, in French. Um, okay, so El Destichado, which of course is Spanish, um, uh, uh, and uh, there's an ambiguity about uh, how to translate it, um, whether it's the more precise meaning of the disinherited or just a more general meaning of somebody who's miserable or unhappy. But I, I think the precise meaning of disinheritance is crucial. So, El Destichado. Je suis le ténébreux, le veuf, l'inconsolé, le prince d'Aquitaine à la tour abolie. Ma seule étoile est morte, et mon lutte constellée porte le soleil noir de la mélancolie. Dans la nuit du tombeau, toi qui m'as consolé, rende-moi le posalipe et le mur d'Italie, la fleur qui plaisait tant à mon cœur désolé, et la trahie le pompe et la rose salie. Suis-je amour ou Phébus, Lusignon Ubiron, mon front est rouge encore du baiser de la reine. J'ai rêvé dans la grotte, une âge la sirène. Et j'ai deux fois vainqueur traversé l'acheron, modulant tour à tour sur la lyre d'Orphée, les soupirs de la sainte et les cris de la fée. So my attempt at a translation, I am the shadowy one the widower, the unconsoled, the prince of Aquitaine at the ruined tower. My only star is dead, and my star-strewn lute bears the black sun of melancholy. In the night of the tomb, you who have consoled me, give me back 
Posilipo and the sea of Italy, the flower that so pleased my desolate heart, and the bower where the vine and the rose unite. Am I Cupid or Phoebus, Lusignan or Byron? It should be Biron, I think. Um, my brow is still red from the kiss of the queen. I have dreamt in the grotto where swims the siren. And I have twice, as a conqueror, crossed over the Acheron, modulating by turns on the lyre of Orpheus, the sighs of the saint, and the cries of the fairy. Okay, so that's de Nerval, and alongside that I want to read Ode on Melancholy, and unfortunately I didn't make sure to get myself a copy of it with the cancelled first stanza, but I will find the cancelled first stanza uh, for the seminar tomorrow. So there is, in fact, a first stanza, um, uh, and uh, that, uh, that uh, relates to the fact that uh, the poem as we have it begins, as it were, in medias res, or in the middle of a, almost like a conversation, at this time, a conversation with himself. There is a prior statement, and he's now turning around against that prior statement, saying, no, no. That's why it begins in the way it begins, because there is this previous stanza which makes a certain kind of affirmation and then he, there's a turn. The poem, as we have it, begins with that turn, that negation. No, no, go not to Lethe, neither twist wolf's bane, tight-rooted for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of proserpine. Make not your rosary of yewberries, nor let the beetle nor the death moth be your mournful psyche nor the downy owl, a partner in your sorrow's mysteries. For shade to shade will come too drowsily and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. But when the melancholy fit shall fall, sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the droop-headed flowers all and hides the green hill in an April shroud, then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave, or on the wealth of globed peonies. Or if thy mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand and let her rave and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. She dwells with beauty, beauty that must die, and joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, and aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison, while the bee mouth sips. I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy, has her sovereign shrine, though seen of none, save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. Okay. Um... I make one or two brief points about both poems. Um, <coughs> in Melancholy, um, it's not all these other odes are two. This one's ode on Melancholy, which is interesting. Okay, it's not a direct address to the personification Melancholy, whereas Ode to a Nightingale, it's Ode on a Grecian Urn. Actually, Ode to a, no, it's Ode to a Grecian. I'm not sure now. On, on uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn to Autumn. Um, to Psyche, Ode to Psyche. And I think that's important for it positions the voice in a certain way, okay, in a certain mode of address. 
Um, so in fact, he's not talking to melancholy, he's talking about melancholy. Who is he talking to? Um, he might be talking to himself, um, or when you have the cancelled first stanza, he appears to be talking to somebody, if you like, the melancholiac. And the melancholiac's rituals uh, by which they elaborate their melancholy, rituals to do with death. Okay. Um, so that's the whole of the first stanza, as it were, elaborating the melancholiac's death-centered uh, rituals. Uh, and the, the stanza that begins the poem now, though it begins with a negation, no, no, is negating that picture of melancholia. No, no, don't do that. Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> in a sense, he's sharing the melancholiac's project, which is to find melancholy. Where's the best place to find the goddess melancholy? Okay. Not with all those things that, you're, that you want to do. And he gives us another little list of things. Um, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, taking uh, wolfsbane um, as poisonous wine or um, nightshade, deadly nightshade, allowing your forehead to be kissed by it. Um, uh, Proserpine is the goddess of the underworld. Uh, don't make your ro rosary of uberies or take the death moth as your, your, your mournful psyche, etc. Um, don't do any of these death-centered things. The place to find melancholy uh, is rather in spring, uh, 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 when melancholy will come like, like a, uh, you know, April showers bring May flowers, like an April shower. There's a phrase in the poem where you expect to hear April shower, you get April shroud, which is interesting, sort of verbal um, uh, sideways movement. Um, uh, uh, glut your sorrow on a morning rose. Don't go to night and death. Go to spring and the morning. Uh, in the very temple of delight, you will find melancholia. Okay, so he's making this very unusual move, and he's doing it in terms of the search for a goddess. All these poems are based on the, note, the Greek ode form, and the Greek ode form is the invocation of a deity of some kind. Uh, most explicit in the first of them, the Ode to Psyche, um, but th that, that, um, that formula of uh, the devotee searching for the god or for the temple of a god, which is going to be invoked through voicing, through verse, uh, is the kind of like the formula for Keats's odes. Uh, and so he's saying here to the melancholiac, if you're going to find the goddess melancholy, you're looking in the wrong place. Right? Um, you'll find melancholy somewhere altogether different. Okay. Um, there isn't that quite that turn, I guess, in El Destichado, um, uh, though there are memories of the past that come back, of, of Italy, uh, of um, p p p uh, this town, Posilipo, on the, uh, on the Italian coast, um, uh, and of a figure um, who simply represented symbolically in the poem, as a fleur, as a flower, or, or um, whatever, um, maybe the same figure as the, the star that is dead. You who once comforted me, now in the night of the tomb, um, uh, uh, give me back those memories of, of, of the past. Um, um, it's interesting, it begins by saying, je suis, and you know how the sonnet form is structured, two quatrains uh, and then a sestet of two tercets. Okay? So in the first of the quatrains, the beginning of the poem, it begins, je suis an affirmation, no, it's a paradoxical affirmation, so affirmation of a negative identity. Je suis le tenebreux, le veuf, the widower, l'inconsolé, 
le prince d'Aquitaine à la tour abolie. The, uh, the sestet begins with that in reverse. Suis-je, am I, not je suis, but suis-je. Suis-je amour ou phébus? And you're get, getting a series of symbolic choices, and scholars tell us what partly these symbolic figures represented, historical symbolic figures represented for de Nerval. Though Christopher makes a point, in a way you don't even need to know the, the precise cultural references here, uh, because the naming of names is performing a certain kind of psychological function in the poem, as it were. Um, they are ancestral names, names from the cultural history of France. Uh, uh, and so he's, as it were, naming the ancestors um, uh, <coughs> and asking questions. And there's, there's a choice to be made, Amour ou Thébus, Lusignan ou Biron. And then a, a, uh, those uh, wonderful lines about the siren and the queen. Um, uh, and finally, he invokes the, the figure of Orpheus, the, the poet. Uh, and Orpheus, as uh, you recall from the Greek legend, Orpheus's power was to move nature. It could animate stones and trees and uh, a power to musicalize the, the world around him, to animate it by music. Um, and uh, he loses his loved woman, uh, Eurydice, who goes down into the underworld. And he goes down to seek for her, okay, in the, in, in the Greek legend. Um, and he does win, he does win her back. Um, from Dis, the, the god of the underworld, or Pluto, Dis stroke Pluto, um, and she and he takes he's leading her up to um, the uh, the upper world, uh, and, and but he's told he mustn't look back at her. If he looks back, um, everything will be destroyed, and he can't bear not to. He's so um, attached, or so besotted, so driven uh, that he gets halfway up, and then he turns around to see Eurydice, and she's lost. Right, um, and that's the legend. Uh, now, in this poem, he says um, he is. Uh, he rewrites that legend. Right, j'ai deux fois vaincu. Twice have I crossed the Acheron, the river um, that, that separates the underworld from the upper world. Um, uh, uh, so Orpheus did it once. He went down, crossed the Acheron, confronted Pluto or Dis in, in Hades, and he won back Eury Eurydice. Uh, and then lost her again because he turned around. Uh, so um, he's, he, is an, he is an Orpheus, somebody who has crossed the Asheron twice. He's going back a second time okay, to fetch the lost, the lost object um, of mourning. Um, uh, and explicitly, he invokes the figure of, of Orpheus. Um, and he's a conqueror, he says. Right? Just, he, he's, he has kind of won her back a second time. Uh, and it ends with this figure of himself as Orpheus, uh, uh, modulating uh, on his lyre sighs and cries, female voices, uh, the, the, the soupir de la sainte, the sighs of the saint and the cries of the fairy. Um, okay, so that's the, um, as it were, the, the symbolic plot, <laughs> if you like, uh, of, of each of those poems, where the poet figure uh, goes in search of uh, uh, the lost object um, and of, or of melancholy itself, figured as a, as a woman. Um, uh, a woman who, who's, who's t whose place of residence, whose temple, is not, is not in an obvious place. 
okay, is not where you might think it would be, but is somewhere else, is at the heart of life itself. In fact, seems to be the implication of, the, of Keats's ode. Okay. okay, that's enough for that, but I just wanted them to sort of hang in the air, so to speak. Okay, um, Christopher, uh, I've already spoken for too much about that. Um, she revisits um, Freud uh, in, in certain passages in both uh, the, the, the essay extract and the chapter I've given you. Um, and I've put them together in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, with page numbers in the introductions. Um, where she, she goes back to Freud and revisits Freud's account of melancholia uh, as, this, as we've seen, sadomasochistic internalization of an ambivalent relationship to the lost object. Um, uh, and the, uh, that ambivalent love-hate relationship to the lost object, however that's motivated or explained, is internalized and played out as an internal drama in which um, the ego is... Um, is not enriched by that identification or that internalization, but precisely almost erased or, or impoverished by it, and, and, and is, and is uh, uh, beaten up, criticized, um, damned, condemned, punished by uh, the, the superego. Um, and there are different ways in which that, that drama can be played out, um, in which the subject is, is both um, continuing a kind of conflictual relationship with the, with the lost object, but preserving it at the same time, as it were. Uh, uh, and we're seeing that in all the, all the poe texts, really. Um, even where, even in those poems like um, uh, 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 Ulalume or Annabelle Lee, where she's in a tomb, <laughs> so she has been buried, um, nevertheless, um, there's a sense in which she's not really dead. Um, and of course, in the tales, the woman comes back again and again and again. Um, and there is this peculiarly um, uh, a, a tone that's both ideal, idealizing the woman, but also uh, it's accompanied by hostility or fear or aggression. Um, and it's unclear sometimes in, in post texts who's aggressing who. Or is the aggression coming from her, the threatening way in which she comes back? Um, is it coming um, from the male mourner? So the, the, the Freudian drama, she kind of touches base with uh, and acknowledges, um, but she wants to describe what she calls another kind of melancholia. Um, she calls it a sort of narcissistic melancholia because it's, it's bound up with primary narcissism. Uh, uh, and remember when we looked at the on narcissism paper of Freud's uh, and the way in which Freud formulates the notion of narcissism in relationship to the formation of the ego itself the very f forming of a unity that coheres the drives um, in a single place and in a single uh, subject addressed to a single object um, is, is a kind of uh, a narcissistic unification. Um, and the, the issues have come up about well, what, what enables this to happen. Freud says very clearly, uh, you, you're not born with an ego. It has to be formed. Um, how is this formed? What, what is the new psychical action that forms the ego? It's clearly bound up with narcissism. And that fantasy of the, uh, that Freud describes, but doesn't theorize, so to speak, um, uh, the fantasy of His Majesty the baby, uh, the loved object to, which, to, to whom um, the parents donate their own 
um, ego libido or their own uh, primary narcissism, which they, they transfer across to, the, to, the, to his majesty, uh, as it were. Now, she's locating uh, a, 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 a melancholia in relationship to that formative moment. Okay? And she's doing something that Freud doesn't do. She's relating that formative moment to language, to the acquisition of language, and to the capacity to represent, to symbolize, to signify. Uh, so the formation of the ego um, and, uh, and the acquisition of language uh, are connected uh, in, in an intimate way. Um, Now we, I think the seed for Christopher's ideas comes from uh, the work of Abraham and Toro, and she borrows some of their terms. She talks about crypts and tombs, etc. But she's actually making a different kind of argument from there. But the seed of it comes from their account of the, what they call the mouth work, by analogy with the dream work or, or the work of melancholia. That's why I spent, I laboured that those passages a bit in the seminars. Uh, that, that very suggestive, it is only a sketch, it is, but it's a very suggestive way in which um, the, uh, m the most uh, primary um, form of dependency of the newborn on, on, on the nurturing adult, usually the mother, uh, is, the, is being fed at the breast, being fed by the mother. Um, uh, and the way in which that gives way to um, uh, uh, a capacity to tolerate the mother's absences and inter intermittences, um, uh, and that uh, the suggestion is through, through the words given the child by the mother, uh, that, that the uh, child can signify and, and represent and call, uh, but also represent in her absence the mother, because the child has or the infant has the noises, the sounds that have come to it from the mother in the first place, and which are not neutral. Uh, they are loaded with affect. They're a sort of sound system of, of emotions and feelings. Uh, so when the, a child acquires the phonemic scale of a given language, it acquires it as, a, as an emotional sonorous medium. Prior to any, lear any learning how to signify, uh, uh, prior to the articulated structure of, of, of language, there is this acquisition, if you like, of this sonorous medium which carries affect directly from the mother to the the infant, um, and um, the capacity to do that is bound up with the formation of an ego, um, and particularly as the child moves from um, babbling and echolalias and playful noises, etc., and starts trying its wings, so to speak, with uh, articulated speech. The movement into a highly articulated speech is a movement uh, of differentiation um, and substitution in relation to the mother. Right? Uh, to become a speaking subject, uh, you have to differentiate yourself from other subjects uh, and, in, and be able to represent a world of objects. Objects are objects for a, for a separated subject, an individuated subject. Uh, to be able to say I uh, and to sponsor sentences as I, the speaking subject. Um, um, when, particularly when that, that I function is not my name, because children often begin by, by, by saying John, you know, or naming themselves. Being able to represent yourself 
as I, through what linguists call a shifter, is a quite interesting and paradoxical activity because it's not a name, it's not your name. Because when other people speak back to you, they call themselves I. Okay? Uh, so you say I, representing yourself, uh, and you address the other person as you, or in some languages that allow for it more intimately. Okay? Tu or toi. Uh, uh, we've lost that capacity. The and thou now are just merely archaic. Um, um, then the other person speaks to us and they call themselves I and they call us you, okay? And that oscillation of personal pronouns as a linguistic function presupposes, again, a, a, a kind of psychical process of some kind in which the, the subject has individuated themselves, knows that I'm not the other person, okay? But I'm in involved in this dialogical relationship with the other person in which we say I and you in reverse to each other. Now, the, the acquisition of articulated speech is then bound up with um, the, the formation of an ego. And narcissistically loved as the ego is, it also um, marks a moment of differentiation from the other. It may be supported by the other, um, loved into being, so to speak, by the parental or adult other, but it's this moment of differentiation. Um, it's also, um, uh, Christopher wants to suggest a moment of loss, okay? That, that intimate body-to-body -body, uh, uh, dependency on the mother um, is, is, is uh, given up, is, is lost. Uh, and uh, she says, the mother is refound again in language, through in symbols, in the words she had originally given and the sound she had originally given to the infant. Um, and, and, that, and that fundamental acquisition of an ego who speaks, of a speaking ego, if you like, of a narcissistic speaking ego, um, uh, is, a, is, is, a, is a moment of loss, which is then compensated for by the entry into language and into the symbolic order that goes with language, the capacity to symbolize, um, to symbolize both objects in the outside world who are not you, but to also your own inner states, your own states of feeling, can then be symbolized and represented to or for the other. So, so in, in a sense, the other that had once been inside one uh, or um, uh, undifferentiated in its relationship to one then becomes definitely the outside other, the other to whom I say you, okay, who is not me. Um, but it's, not, uh, but it's not as clear-cut as, as, as a normative account of it might be, a normative developmental account of this is what we all do, or this is what we all should do. Um, because uh, giving up that relationship to the mother um, is a complicated process, and it depends, and, and there are all sorts of things that can happen at that point. Um, now she's interested in uh, forms of melancholia that are tied to um, the problematic nature of that transition, if you like. Um, a, a transition that is never quite completed, a transition in which um, the ego is never quite closed off as itself or as autonomous. Um, and she, in a way, I suppose you could say, uh, the account she's giving is, uh, is a, accounts of um, a variety of different um, relationships that can, uh, 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 that can uh, result from 
that movement into language and the symbolic and, and, and becoming a speaking subject. Um, uh, and in particular, she's interested in um, the ways in which, um, and it is paradoxical, um, the ways in which it's not just, it's not an either or question. You know, either you make the transition uh, in, into language and the symbolic, or, or you don't. Um, uh, there's a whole borderline area in which, yes, you become a speaking subject, but in some sense, uh, the psychical umbilical cord is, ne is, not, is never completely ruptured. There is always a connection back to. Um, uh, now, what is it a, con a connection back to? Right? That's, we're trying to be precise. Uh, um, and that's why she introduces this differentiation between the thing and the object. Because in a way, um, what's lost on the other side of language isn't an object in the proper sense of that word. An object is a sort of boundaried and defined entity that is not me and separated from me in a world of other objects and subjects. Because what we're talking about is, is, a, is an other who is somehow or other me at the same time, or who is not differentiated from me. She sometimes refers to it as a pre-object. Okay. Uh, something that may evolve into an object or into something that will be the place where a succession of objects are substituted, objects of desire, objects of love, uh, are substituted for this primordial relationship to something uh, that is, um, is both me and part of me and, and not me, and which I have to give up but which I can't tolerate entirely giving up. Okay. Um, and a, it's very, her account is very paradoxical it's in a number of ways. It's paradoxical because she's talking about the melancholic who's somebody who is mourning something that's been lost and yet who can't give up <laughs> that mourning can't, and can't, in that sense, can never quite give up um, uh, the, the object of mourning. And indeed, she says uh, uh, um, that uh, uh, sorrow itself becomes um, the melancholiac's thing. Okay, and, and that's almost that translation is almost being used in the slang sense. What's your thing? My thing is my prof my the thing that excites me, the thing that turns me on, the thing that is my, the, you know that that uh, that is my um, intense favorite thing of all. You know and that that the slangy idiom, contemporary idiom. Um, uh, so this so the the, the relishing or cherishing um, of sorrow uh, as as a way back to as a way of not of not differentiating, I suppose. But, the, but that, that, that may be the result of forces going both ways. I've described it so far as the subjects um, hanging on to the psychical umbilical cord. But it may well be um, that it operates the other way around, that the mother won't let go um, at, at some level, not at an obvious level necessarily, but at some level um, the, the subject remains her part object. Okay. And after all, the implications of Freud's um, uh, analysis is that we all begin lives, our lives, as a part object of someone else, right? as part of someone else, okay? uh, an intensely invested part of someone else. Um, so the question is partly a drama of differentiation, of individuation, and, uh, and an individuation that, that can only take place I'm going to say not properly or normatively, if the relationship to the undifferentiated 
thing, let's use her term, um, uh, is transposed into language, right? Uh, is, not, is not just denied or cut off. She's, so she's not arguing for a model of individuation which American ego psychology often seems to be arguing for in which you become an autonomous ego. It's not about that, okay? Uh, the relationship has to be w reworked and transposed uh, into, uh, uh, into a, a linguistic or symbolic relationship uh, to, a, to a, a figure who will be substituted for a number of times. Okay. So it's still a relational um, conception. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's, not a, it's not giving um, uh, any support to the illusions of an autonomous ego. It's a question of transposing, reworking a, rela a relationship. Okay. Um, she talks at the end in a, a, in a, in a very striking passage, given, she, given um, it's... it's uh, uh, you know, someone who is committed to um, feminism, um, she talks about the necessity for matricide, okay, for a sort of psychical killing of killing of the uh, uh, of of a series of imagos of the mother. Um, and indeed, there is a very interesting passage of Virginia Woolf. So I don't know some of you may know it in one of her essays. I think it's uh, um, it maybe an essay that's got a title, a rather uninteresting or slightly worthy title, like. Careers for Women or something, but it's a very powerful essay in which she talks about killing the angel in the house. Do people know that passage? It's really violent, right? And she's talking about the woman writer. How do you ever get to write? How do you to find your voice? How do you get to write a sentence that's yours? And the angel in the house will come and whisper in your ear, my dear, you're a woman. Be kind, be flattering. You know, etc. And so you get the voice of a certain model of femininity. It's the, t the phrase "angel in the house" is taken from a famous Victorian poem, which celebrated the domestic woman as the angel in the house. And Virginia Woolf says, "You must, uh, you must not listen to her seductions or her voice. In fact, you must turn round rapidly uh, and grab her by the throat and strangle her." <laughs> so it's this kind of psychic violence that she she advocates. You know. Um, I think I'm doing that, am I? Um, a sort of psychic violence that she advocates uh, against this, this internal Id ideal of womanhood, as it were. Um, so it's not, it's not identical with what Christopher is saying, but there are certain interesting parallels there. Uh, what is at stake, of course, is also the managing of um, what Freud calls, and she's happy to continue calling, the death drive. Okay. Um, and the ways in which the death drive can, needs to be, as it were, bound symbolically uh, and, um, uh, and, and to some extent disarmed or put to, to, to be sublimated, in other words. Mm. And sublimation is a key term for her. She doesn't lay out a, th a theory of sublimation. She's just assuming Freud's notion of sublimation, I guess. But she talks about uh, poetry and writing um, as, as, form, as forms of sublimation um, that uh, assist this process of constructing on the other side of language, on, on this side of language, I should say, I suppose, on this side of language, uh, a w uh, both um, a positioning of oneself as speaking subject and a range of relationships to loved or desired objects um, who, who nevertheless have some continuity back to this 
this strange thing she calls the thing, um, uh, the pre-object. Um, uh, maybe I should just read uh, a passage. Um, the other thing, yes, the other thing I'll say uh, is that. Um, So are there, are there two other things I need to introduce, as it were. Um, one is the, what in her earlier work she, she calls um, uh, the semiotic cora. Um, she takes the word cora from Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus, the semiotic Cora. Now, in a sense, uh, and the word Cora goes back to the Timaeus, where uh, Plato talks about some primordial flux um, uh, of being uh, before anything stable has emerged, um, anything like defined objects or, or, or stable patterns, as it were, a sort of a primordial flux, and it's as she herself comments, which she quotes from the Timaeus, at times it's unclear whether he's talking about um, the physical universe or if he's talking about language, or, or so in some odd way talking about both. Um, and he talks about this as, an, as the wet nurse of becoming, the wet nurse of becoming. Uh, it's a pulsating womb-like womb image of a, a, a primordial state of the universe, which is by implication also a kind of like a primordial state of of human, of human being. Um, uh, and she calls it semiotic because she's wanting to describe uh, what I've referred to as those first uh, emo uh, affect-laden, um, emotionally charged sounds of language that the infant acquires from the mother. Okay. It's a sort of sonorous medium in which the two cohabit together. Um, and for, for Christopher, that, what she calls this Semiotic chorus, semi semiotic from sign, the Greek for sign, semion. Um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the material of language, which then has to be articulated and regulated. Syntax is acquired, logical form is acquired, rules of, of utterance are acquired, as it were. Uh, and, she, and she calls that um, the symbolic. Now, it, it, it corresponds corresponds to Freud's distinction between primary and secondary processes. Um, where the primary processes, remember from the dream work, is this constant movement of, of displacement and condensation. Uh, the secondary processes are in, involve uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, negation, logical exclusions, uh, syntax, uh, ordered and regulated speech. Um, now, she, for her, the semiotic core is made up of these basic, um, f I'm, I'm calling it phonemes, basic sounds of language, but they're charged with affect and with drive, they're invested with the, with the basic drives. Uh, and they are the sources of poetic inspiration, she argues. Uh, they are, they are the dimensions, the rhythmical, musical, tonal, um, 
dimensions of language that are exploited in poetry, but which in ordinary speech we avoid. Um, now, one of the paradoxes about her argument about um, poetry is uh, that the poet has to somehow or other keep um, lines open back to the Cora. Okay, has to keep some connection alive uh, with that, with the, that primordial, uh, as yet undifferentiated um, relation to the to, to the maternal thing. <laughs> or the maternal pre-object before objects and subjects become differentiated for the infant. And of course, that's a risky business. That's why she says um, you know, uh, that there's a, uh, uh, there's, there's a kind of somber lining of melancholia on the other side of, uh, of writing and of, and of poetry. Poetry exploits that, um, that, that, um, that link back to that primordial state. Um, uh, and it puts, um, she argues, uh, an, a writer's at risk um, uh, because it's like keeping a wound open, if you like. Um, so yes, the, the semiotic core and the symbolic. Now, these are mapped as well onto, in a very, very normative way, uh, it must be said, onto maternal and paternal. Okay. Because um, the father figure in the, in the, in the family triangle uh, is the third term that the infant has to come to terms with. A third term, who, a figure who is always already there before me, always already there with the mother before me. Um, uh, the, 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 the infant has to come to terms with the parental, the, the, the third term and the parental relationship. Um, and that is not just, um, it's, it's very often presented in a negative way in the classical Freudian account of the Oedipus complex. The father figure uh, is the Oedipal Oedip father who represents the, the taboo on incest, who threatens. Uh, uh, Lacan coined this phrase, le nom du père, the no of the father. It's punning on the French, nom for name, le nom du père, as in, in the name of the father, etc. Le nom du père le, is the nom, the no, who forbids. Uh, and who threatens. But there, there is a, uh, a positive side of the, uh, uh, the imaginary father, Lacan and Christopher calls him, the father who, as it were, whose presence enables or assists the child to differentiate, right? To move, in, to, to move into a world where there are thirds, where there are others, where it's not just mummy me, <laughs> as it were. Um, uh, but to move in, but to realize that the mother already occupies that space in terms of having her, her relationship with the father. Um, so the father, she sees the paternal function, and this, this is very characteristic of French psychoanalysis in general. She sees the paternal function, both psychically and culturally, uh, as um, being a kind of, uh, what would you call it, a prop, uh, a, a support for that process of individuation or differentiation, a way of um, differentiating from the mother and then reformulating one's relationship uh, to the mother. And her account of um, El Destichado is very much, um, uh, you know, the thing, this black sun of melancholy that radiates darkness rather than light, but which somehow or other calls on me and draws me into the darkness. Um, uh, in, in the first two quatrains of the poem, uh, and he calls on this female figure 
um, to, to uh, give him back the sunlight uh, and the memories he has um, now in the, when he's suffering in the night of the tomb, uh, in the night of her loss. Uh, but in the Sestet, he calls on these male ancestral figures, um, and, uh, uh, whether it's Orpheus or Lusignon or Biron or the, the Cupid um, follow a divinity, male divinity figures uh, as, as um, names of the father, if you like, of the symbolic father. Uh, it's a process of symbolic naming. Um, that he, uh, am, and, but it's done in the interrogative, interestingly. He doesn't confidently affirm, I am the son of Lusignon and Bar Biron. He says, am I? As if there's this instability or uncertainty in his relationship to these symbolic figures whom he names as somehow or other ancestors or prototypes that he might maybe be or become. Whereas he's quite, he's quite firm about who he is in the opening. You know, Je suis le ténébreux, le veuf. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm widowed, I'm, I'm um, uh, uh, bereft, I'm struck by, by loss and deprivation. I'm in the tomb, my only star is dead. Um, uh, but I, I can sing um, on, on my lute, um, I can sing of the black sun of melancholy. Okay, as, partly as a way of overcoming it. So the male figures in the end of the poem become the support for that uh, as it were, m musical sublimation uh, of, of the state of melancholia that the poem uh, is struggling to, to achieve. So that symbolic function of the third term um, is crucial, I think, for, for Christopher um, as, the, as, as the support for a process of individuation. In this, in this case, fragile, you might say. Um, that's that's uh, part of her reading of the poem, but it's a reading that it goes back to her account of language. Um, and for her, the acquisition of language isn't this neutral thing you do, like we might learn a, a foreign language. Okay? For her, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a question of um, participating in certain psychic processes. So the learning of language, whether it's the basic phonemes and uh, so sound forms of language sat uh, that are emotionally saturated in, in this relationship to the mother, um, or the learning of articulated speech, uh, involves psychic processes of differentiation and identification. Uh, and that makes, for her, literature in general and poetry in particular, particularly interesting. Particularly interesting because it's, it's only possible if, uh, uh, if a line of connection is kept back, kept open, as it were. Okay? If, if the wound of melancholic loss or mourning um, is somehow or other not closed over entirely is if it's kept open so that the um, melodic, melancholic dimensions of speech can be, can be exploited in poetry. Okay, I'll stop there.